sometimes if you look at it and really get into it and realize what he's saying, it just simply staggers the imagination. It's just hard to imagine that this could actually be. But before we read our lesson, I would like to read at least a portion of the ninth chapter of Hebrews. Really, what you ought to do, if you haven't already done it, we'll be probably staying on this lesson for a little while. What you should do is trace down all of the references you possibly can concerning the old tabernacle or the old temple and uh, its worship. And uh, this way you can maybe see the comparisons that's going to be made from the temple, material temple, and then the spiritual temple, which God had intended all the way along. But the ninth chapter, I just want to read that myself, just maybe a few verses, where the Apostle Paul is dealing with this subject with the ordinance and sanctuary, the old covenant, and they were types or shadows and patterns. And he said, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made the first wherewith, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the shewbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that had budded, or that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of his people. The Holy Ghost thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure of the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect, as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meat, drinks, and divers washings, and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of redemption. But Christ, being come into a high priest, come at but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, either by the blood of bulls or, or goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered once into the place, having obtained eternal redemption for us, or in the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifers, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death for a testament is of course after men are dead, otherwise it is no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the 
people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. Moreover, sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. It was therefore necessary that the patterns, I want you to notice this one especially, that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figure of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God before us nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for since must he, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away, by, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And is it, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin and the salvation. All right, and there's a lot of others that possibly should be read in view of our lesson and what we're going to be speaking about this morning. So let's read our lessons, 1 Corinthians 3.16. I'll read the first and you follow. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Six nineteen. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which we have of God, and ye are not your own? Second Corinthians six sixteen. In what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, I will be their God they shall be my people. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Amen. What scriptures? Key verses, howbeit the most high dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, and what is the place of my rest? Most the lesson aim is, no longer does God dwell in material structures built by man, but in the hearts of all who believe him. J. Elliot Corbett wrote something, and uh, I think it's paramount to what we are today. And he simply said, oh, when will we start being the church? Stop making the church a place to go and make it something to be. And I thought that is quite an insight for somebody that lived back from then. Now, of course, making comparison to the temple of God, there's a lot of reading in your lesson book, and you can read that. There's no value for me to read that to you because you have the book yourself and you can read that and see what it says. And of course we have a right to our agreement or disagreement on what the book says. And uh, I would have to just, personally, I would have to disagree with one thing that it says, that 
uh, God simply yielded uh, to David in building the house of the Lord and really didn't want it himself or building the temple and really didn't want it himself. I think all things were planned by the Lord. I think the scriptures very well point out that all these things had to be as a pattern. I think the scriptures that they relate to is simply scriptures that God is trying to tell that regardless of how beautiful the structure might be, how beautiful the building might be and might be reared in the place of worship. And I think God honors us doing the best we can. God always wanted to be sure not to escape our attention that that building was not the church. I think he was always wanting to call our attention to the fact that regardless of how, how much beauty there might be, he was still the predominant one that should be in view of our worship and of our lives. And of course, uh, man's architecture and what man can do is really nothing compared to the great star-studded universe that God has and the beauty that he places forth and all of this. And we need to recognize that hobby uh, according to the scriptures, all things had to be, and God ordained it to be, and I think God wanted it to be, and from there was a pattern, a shadow, or something in which the New Testament temple was going to take shape by. Now, in 1 Corinthians, when we read that, there's, uh, I don't know if you've uh, caught this or will, but there is individuals that say that God talks to us individually and say we're the temple of God individually. And there's a difference with others that say that he doesn't talk to us individually. He talks to us collectively as a church. And it's not a point for argument, of course, because God talks to us in both meanings. There's a lot of scriptures, and I'm sure you will catch that if you read it. Almost all scriptures have dual meanings. They don't change the meaning of it at all, but it just reaches out and embraces something else while the primary target is still being focused upon. And so individually we are the temple of God. Individually we are uh, lively stones, so to speak, that collectively make up the glorious divine temple of God. Now in this particular instance in this book, God is addressing the Corinthian church. Now, he's not addressing them as individuals. See, that doesn't mean that we are not the temple of God as an individual. This simply means at this instant that God, that Paul is addressing the Corinthian church as the temple of God collectively as the church. So we need to keep that in mind. Now, God's temple, and of course, the old temple has perished. It's gone. Whenever the apostles looked upon the beauty of the renovated uh, temple that Herod had renovated and made it look beautiful and saw those beautiful stones that was there and looked and uh, asked Jesus the question concerning the temple and all of this, Jesus was not too concerned about that. You see, it has always been in God's view and it's always been in his heart that his temple should be mankind. That's always been what God has wanted and uh, always been what his aim has been and what his vision has been. That don't mean to say that all of this that happened in between is just things that just happened because there wasn't anything else to happen. It was God's way of progressing man step by step and leading him up to where he then came to dwell in human form and human body. From the uh, creation of Adam alone and Eve 
It was God's intention not only to dwell with them, which he did, but it was his intention to dwell in them. And so the temple actually, when we look at that, all the things that happened in the temple was a shadow and was a pattern. And if we really get with it, it was a lesson. And we can take those things and make application to the spiritual temple of God today. Now, Jesus wasn't too concerned about that temple because he knew that it had lost its usage or would have lost its usage after he was uh, crucified and the veil of that temple was rent in top to bottom. So when he looked at it then, it held no consequence to him because he recognized the day and hour of that was about over. Because when he died and shed his life's blood, why, then he became the high priest and uh, he made the way into the Holy of Holies and the temple uh, bear no responsibility anymore. So actually in AD 70, Nero, of course, came in, conquered Jerusalem and tore down and destroyed the temple, that is, the old temple. But we know, and I'm sure the individuals living there knew, that they had not destroyed God's temple. You see, Jesus had already said before he accepted the temple and he looked when he walked in it and drove the uh, money changers out with a cat of nine tails, he simply said, my house should be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. And notice he said, my house. Still claimed it as his house. But then when he went up on the mountain and looked out over Jerusalem, and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killed the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto you, how oft would I have gathered you together as a mother hen doth for chicks? And ye would not. And then he said, therefore, your house. Not my house any longer. Your house is left until you desolate. So what they were seeing in all of its beauty, Jesus knew that that was soon to go and soon to fade. And the temple of God was not to be, in a sense, a beautiful, shining temple anymore made by man because that perishes. But the new temple is imperishable. Whether it's individual or whether it's collectively, the new temple is imperishable. In other words, if, we, if it's individually, when we're looking at it as we are individual temples of God, it doesn't matter whether death takes us or not, this temple is not it is imperishable. It simply does not perish. It is the power of Almighty God. And he also tells us that the church is forever. I mean, he lets us know collectively as his temple, the church will live on. Men will come and go and ideas will form and come, but God's true church is still going to have its being. So when we look at the temple, the old temple, of course, perished, it's gone. Men have tried to rear buildings and they've tried to reclaim and the Jews of old, of course, are still have it in their mind to build the temple of God again. And all of these, and they say that the pattern is already there. And uh, of course, you hear a lot of stories about this. You heard some time ago that they were getting stone from Bedford, Indiana down here and getting it hewed out already and shipping it over there ready to build a building. And uh, all of this, of course, that's been refuted. They say that that's not so. But we do know that according to the Bible, the temple is going to be reared again, is going to be restored, and uh, it is going to be done without the sound of a hammer. So you know that all of these things actually could be going on right now. A lot of people have said that until the mosque is uh, destroyed, the temple can't be built. But according to some of the latest excavators, excavators, I'll get it right in a few minutes, 
the mosque does not even set upon the foundation of the old temple. They have discovered that. So there again, that's some freedom right there. Also, the Jews are making some terrific efforts to find the Ark of the Covenant. They want to find it. They feel like that it's it's been hidden by Jeremiah someplace, and they're making terrific, terrific efforts to find the Ark of the Covenant. Now, they will not, according to most writers, and I had to almost prone degree, they will not build a temple until they find it. Because they feel like that the glory of God still lives there. And then they notice the last temple that they built, they had no Ark of the Covenant, and so the glory of God really actually never entered in there. So they're not too interested in building a temple until they can find the Ark of the Covenant where they still say that the glory of God dwells. Well, aren't you glad this morning that you know where the glory of God dwells? That you know that it doesn't dwell in the Ark of the Covenant anymore, that it doesn't dwell in the temple or whatever, but we are the body of Christ, the temple of the living God. Now, there's a lot of resemblance. I got to studying in that, and I'm not sure where it's going to take me this morning, but there's so many resemblance, and they ought to be. Anytime there's a pattern of something, then that pattern ought to represent the true thing, and the true thing ought to represent the pattern. I mean, it ought to look something alike, shouldn't it? Resemblance of the old temple, how it was constructed and why it was constructed and what went on, uh, then we can see some of the better glory and be able to recap those words, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. I'm going to say again, that is almost beyond human imagination. It's almost more than we can fathom. In fact, the business is, in our carnal state and in our human thinking, there is no way we can understand it. And because we walk most of the time, or at least a lot of times in the flesh, we simply do not realize that we are the temple of God and that the temple of God deserves some respect, some reverence, some obeisance unto it. And once it ever dawns on our half a brain or my half a brain in this thick skull that I actually have God dwelling in me and I should be careful where I take him and what I subject him to, amen, and how I myself treat him, and how I allow others to treat him. If we can ever really, in the Spirit, recognize that he's there, and the same way with the church collectively, if we can realize we are representatives of that which indwells us. Collectively, we have been made a body, and we ought to be very particular and very careful how we present Jesus Christ to the world outside of here. We should be very careful as a church where we take him, how we represent him, and what we say and what we do and what we allow others to do and say about the church of the living God, regardless of how imperfect, how infantile, how carnal we are, we are still the temple of the living God. And we ought to be proud of that fact, that God does dwell in here that he has taken up his abode, that he has taken charge of the spirit of man. Do you ever get confused as to what, I think it's 1 John that says the seed that dwelleth in him cannot sin. You ever wonder about that when we actually all know that in our life is sin, and yet he's trying to tell us that, that we can't sin in a sense? Well, what we need to realize is that 
whenever Jesus Christ came and his lifeblood was shed and we were baptized in the name of Jesus, the power of the Holy Ghost came in our life and took charge. The human spirit was what was saved. The spirit was what was saved. This body is yet to be saved and this mind is yet to come under control of the Holy Spirit of God. And so actually that is the only thing in man that cannot sin. And that is the seed which is the seed of the Holy Ghost. It has never sinned in his life, and it never will. Hallelujah. And we need to recognize that. All right, resemblance. Number one, the old temple was erected under divine direction. In other words, there was a direction. I don't know if I read that or not, but let me read it in Hebrews 8, 5. It says, Who serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make their tabernacle for sea, saith he, that you make all things according to the pattern shewed to thee in the mount. And so actually it was established, its order, its worship was established under the divine direction of Almighty God. This temple was actually erected for one thing and one thing alone. Now it disintegrated into more than that, but it was erected for one thing and one thing alone, and that was to express the thoughts and purpose of God. In other words, uh, the temple of God was to bring about the thoughts of God. What was God thinking? Where was he going and the purpose? What was the aim and purpose of God? And also we need to realize that the new temple, which is the church of God, we collected it under divine direction. The Bible tells us how we become a temple of God. It's not just thrown out here where we just build anyway, but there is a divine direction in which this temple is supposed to be built. And we as a church, taking it as Paul was writing to us, we as a church are here for one purpose alone, and that is to express to the world the thought of God. In other words, what is the thought of God? What is God thinking today? Not what God thought 80 years ago or what God is going to think in the future, but what is God thinking today? What is the thought of God this morning? Translating it to the world, and that's our, and what's the purpose of God? In other words, where are we going? What aim? What vision? Which direction? Where's God walking? And we are erected that way to experience and to exhort and to express and to let the world know what God's thoughts are, what God's purposes are. Now, number two, it's erected for the divine glory, the divine glory of God alone. You see, it lost that because they got to seeing what uh, they had builded for God. They got to seeing the beauty of what man could do, what his mind can imagine, all the beauty and splendor of uh, that great temple that Solomon finally erected and built. And they began to get their minds on that and failed to realize that this was a house ad in the sense of his spiritual temple. Sometimes we lose sight when we look and see the glory. And like I said, I am all for one to make a house of God as beautiful as we can possibly afford to make it be. It should never be any less than the homes we live in. Possibly, possibly should be greater. But as always, God is trying to tell us, look, regardless of how much beauty comes by the hand of man, don't let us lose the importance of what is supposed to indwell that temple. 
What was it built it for? As far as the church is concerned. And in other words, look at us. What was our body created for? Why are we here anyway? To spend a few years, 70 years of doing our own thing, having no purpose in our life, are building great kingdoms and obtaining great wealth only to lay them down at the day of death. Isn't this what we were made for by the mighty hand of God? Or was we made to expound, to proclaim, to stand upon God's holy word and to shine forth as lights in the midst of a darkened world? So you see, if we're not careful, the pride of man, we'll get to looking at the beauty of what God has created, our intellect. Oh, we get so smart in this day and hour, and yet... Uh, how dumb we are in the, in the presence of God. And we get, get to see all of these things, but God as always. And the only scriptures was written concerning, uh, I want to read that one, I think it's found someplace in your lesson. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where is the house that you build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath my hand made, all those things have been, saith the Lord. But this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. In other words, regardless of how beautiful things actually appear in what we make and what we try to be, let's never, never lose sight of the main purpose in this temple of God. It is for the glory of God. Now, admittingly, I think we'll all have to admit it, Admittingly, we don't live like it's for the glory of God. We live most of the time, a lot of times, after the glory of man. What we can, what can we do to better uh, up our value, so to speak, uh, our claims? How much more can we reach out and envelop and claim in this world? And I suppose there's nothing wrong with having goods, and there's nothing wrong, certainly, with having money. It gives you a peace and easy, easy feeling. But when any of these things we place become more predominant in our life than the glory of God, and God does not become the supreme object of why we are here. This temple was erected because God needed a place to dwell. He was supposed to be the supreme object of why that temple was there. When humanity saw it, when the Queen of Sheba heard about it, the main object was not the beauty, it was who indwelt it, who made it what it was. Every part of the old temple showed an advancement toward the Holy of Holies where God dwelt. Now, that, that, the one I read to you, that's why it was important. There was an outer court, and uh, that's where everybody could come. And then there was the sanctuary, and then there was the holy place, and then there was the Holy of Holies, and everything about that temple was an advancement toward the Holy of Holies, where the grand finale took place when the high priest went in once a year and uh, took the blood and, and sprinkled it and did his duties in there to cover the whole nation of Israel's sins for another year. But that temple, the temple, outer court, and then you went into the sanctuary, and you went into the holy place and all of it, was a, an uphill thing and finally to the Holy of Holies. And that tells us something. Everything in the church should be as such, should be to glorify God and point the way to His holiness, to maturity. Beginning at one place, always an advancement toward maturity and the holiness that God expects out of us. 
We were in the outer court one time, sinners. We had a right to be in the outer court of God, the outer court of the temple. The Gentiles were even allowed there. But we were there one time, sinners. And finally, at the invitation of God, we came into the sanctuary. And there was all the beauty there and all of those things. And then the holy place. And then finally, we come to the holy of holies where Almighty God brings us and makes us mature. So this temple of ours should always show an advancement toward the grand finale or the grand climax of it all. Now also, this temple was erected for the welfare of men. You see, they always called it God's temple or Israel's temple or what have you, or the temple of God. But the temple of old was not only for God. The temple of old was for men. And that doesn't stop yet. The church's mission is to seek the lost and to bring glory to God in doing that. I made a note here, and I feel it's worthy of our consideration this morning. The church's worship is likely to be a mockery unless her work is faithfully performed. So actually, worship is part of it. But worship becomes a mockery unless the work of God is being performed outside of our worship service. Amen. I think we ought to take good note of that. We do have a mission. We have a mission to portray God. We have a mission to show the lost and dying world. And it is our prerogative, our privilege, probably even a commandment for us to worship the Lord. But worship, coming together, being inspired by one another, testimony, singing, at least we ought to be inspired by one another. Amen? Whatever one has to say ought to inspire someone else. The Word of God comes forth, should inspire us, should correct us, uh, should, uh, should multiply our beliefs in Him. The singing should inspire us. We should not sit in critical, uh, judgmental attitudes about who is doing what and what is being done. A worship service is to strengthen us and to bring us to a unity where God wants us, and that way we can perform our work faithfully outside of here. It's like gassing up a car. You know, you can run your car and it runs real fine until you run out of gas, and then you are in problems. It's just like eating. You need to eat your natural food to keep up your strength, you can't present to this world, naturally speaking, a healthy body without eating. And you can't do that as far as God's Spirit is concerned. You can't show to the world something healthy without uh, eating from the table of Almighty God. So regardless of what our worship is, a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on worship, and it is very necessary. I would to God we could maybe worship more in the Spirit sometimes than we do. Uh, get our minds that it's clouded with so many other things uh, and some way find that holy place of worship and let it do something to us so when we leave the house of God we wouldn't leave confused and and uh, wouldn't leave hurt or wouldn't leave angry or just wouldn't leave the way we came in. I think probably that's the thing that bothers me more than anything else. Uh, naturally, I don't like to make people angry. They come in with their life the way it is. They live, leave out the life, live the same way. Nothing whatsoever is changed in their life. Well, this shows to me that there's something lacking, even in our worship, in our messages, or in the man. One of the two. You know, sometimes we can set our course, and we become kind of can become so habitual that we can never be changed. We harden our heart. The Bible tells a warning about that: harden up your hearts, as in the days of provocation. In other words, our heart always ought to be open 
There's something that God is trying to get to us. If it goes against the grain, look it up. Pray about it. Chew on it a little bit. Don't just spit it out because it don't taste good in your mouth. The Bible talks sometimes about something that's spit on our mouth and sweet in our belly. <laughs> all right, after it's digested, after it's taken up, and after it's swallowed, it's not bad at all. So we need to recognize that, and this is what the temple of God was for. And then the old temple was set apart for God. If you notice, I said before, nothing unclean and unholy could ever get to the holy place. All of these things were set in the patterns, all of this, the outer court, and then they come in, and there was a brazen altar, and a labor of water, and then the table of incense, and all of these things had to do with cleansing humanity. And this temple was set apart from God. And the church ought to, ought to also be separate and ought to be holy, set apart just for God. And our bodies should be set apart just for God. How many of us have kingdoms inside of us that's never failed yet? I mean, they have just simply been there. God has come in. But somewhere, somehow, we just haven't invited him to take control of every kingdom heart. Some things that we just simply insist that it's ours and we'll be ruler over them. Well, as the old temple was set apart from God, so should the church and so should we as individuals. Now, 1 Peter 2 and 9 says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a peculiar people. Peculiar people. Now, that doesn't mean you're uh, some type of a nut. Amen? That doesn't mean that you've got to go off and act this plum crazy. Amen. A lot of that, that's the way the interpretation has always been. Just because you act a little bit different, that makes you a peculiar person. Well, it might be in the English language, but not from the original. From the original, it simply means acquire, purchase. So, in other words, what it's saying here, you are a peculiar people, you are an acquired people. Acquired by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a purchased possession. You've been bought. I think we just read that you're not your own. You've been bought. A price was paid. You then become God's own possession. Hallelujah. Doesn't make you a daffy duck out here someplace or a Mickey Mouse type of individual. It just makes you God's because he bought you. Amen. You're an acquired individual. It cost him something to purchase you. And that's why he keeps saying in here, you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself, and we'll get into that more a little bit later on. But it's set apart for God, and we have been set apart for God. God bought us. He purchased us for a reason. Stop and ask yourself a few moments, why am I here? Why was I born? Why did I finally come to God? Why do I know the truth as I know it? What is the reason why and then after you've asked yourself that question, ask yourself then the question of, am I really, really doing what I'm supposed to do with my life? I live it as if it belongs to me, yet I have been acquired by God. I live it as if it is mine, yet I have been purchased. You see, we have really never our own. How many of you know that? When you were out in sin, don't tell me you were your own. You wasn't. You belonged to the powers of hell. Oh, human nature and still by the powers of evil 
and subject you to that and his suggestions, you belong to him. You traveled according to his roadmap. You read his books. You did his things. You went his places. Never belonged to him. And then when you came to Jesus, he set you free. <laughs> yeah, he set you free, but there's more to his freedom than what you would imagine. He just bought you. In other words, just like a slave who was put on an auction block, you know, and auctioned off, and Jesus come along, the devil was saying, there's not enough money in this world to buy these individuals from me. And Jesus comes and says, how about my own precious blood? I bought them with that. And then we become his possession. So we really never left our own being. We become the principal objects of the Lord Jesus Christ peculiar people uh, and a, a purchase position. I like this God's own position. God's own. And then of course the temple was reared as an object of view. Probably as we said one of the most fascinating objects of beauty. People from all over came to behold the temple. Queen of Sheba, if you read that, she just simply, there wasn't any more strength in her. She was simply so impressed with what was set before her eyes. And all of our eyes, regardless of the past there, just simply beheld the beauty of that temple. Now, the thing we need to know is it didn't make any difference whether these individuals were part of that temple worship or not. It didn't make any difference whether they accepted this God that dwelt in there to be their God or not. It didn't make any difference. They still saw the beauty of that temple. And they were impressed by the beauty of that temple. And I think there's something if we're going to make a relationship between the material temple and the spiritual temple, I think we ought to recognize that one particular thing, especially in view, that all eyes beheld its beauty. Could not help it. Now, the Queen of Sheba certainly didn't have Israel's God as her God, but she was impressed by it. All the kings certainly didn't have Solomon's God and didn't come and worship in that temple, but they were so impressed by the beauty of that temple. What are you trying to say, Brother Hosebaugh? I'm trying to say if there is a comparison, and there is, the Bible said it was a pattern, if there is a comparison, then we have to realize that whether individuals out here ever become part of the worship in our church here, or this particular place of worship, whether they ever come and worship here, and whether they ever accept our God as their God or not, we need to leave such an impression on them that they cannot forget it. And we can only do that by letting the beauty of God shine forth in our life. Succumb to that which indwells us, and the beauty of holiness ought to clothe the church collectively and us as individuals the same way as that beauty clothed that temple where the eyes beheld it and they couldn't help but look at it and admire it. That's the type of temple individually that we ought to present to the world. Now our doctrine might confuse them because 
spiritual things is not known by the carnal mind or the natural mind. Men cannot understand it with their carnal mind. That's why it's casting our pearls before the swine to try to expound our doctrine to individuals that are sinners. They can't understand this. They don't know what we're talking about. They are confused about it all. And so what do we do first? Present them Jesus Christ in the simplicity of it all. And whether they ever accept our doctrinal points or not, or whether they ever come to worship or ever even become part of the temple of God, they ought to look and be impressed with our presentation of God. See us and how God dwells in us. Watch how we climb the mountains and how we walk through the valleys. Watch when we cling to God's unchanging hand, when everything inside of us cries out its foolish and we still hold to God's unchanging hand. Let the world see that we believe our God is our God. Not just a God of fun and games, not just a God that's there uh, when everything's going fine, but let them see and admire and become impressed with what indwells us. Show it to the world. And show it to the world in unity of the presence of God. The only way that the church collectively, and I'm talking about the local body of Christ right now, the only way that the uh, church collectively can impress individuals in the outside world is the way the early church did. And there was just one real good scripture in spite of all the uh, adverse things that were said and all the mysteries about the air mysteries about the church. It just simply says that they knew they were Christians by their love. In other words, there was something about this church that brought all races, all creeds, all colors, people from every walk of life, people with different thoughts, different ideas, different opinions, and yet this one thing that indwelt them, that made them what they were, enabled them to move in love and in unity. People was impressed by that. And if they were impressed then by that, then that's the only thing that's going to impress this world. You see, as long as there's divisive forces, as long as there's envy and malice and strife and all of these things moving in our heart and in our life, we're never going to make a favorable impression upon the world that looks at the temple or the church. It's never going to be. The only one thing they always knew, they knew. Now, what was talking about they knew, that was talking about the outside world. People that didn't know God in any sense of the word, they knew they were Christians back then because love knew no bounds. Love was able to see the faults of man and still love them. Love was able to walk the paths with man and still love them. Love was able, love doesn't quit when man does. You see, love doesn't quit when we part ways of opinion. Amen? I mean, if, if you loved before, and then we come to disagreement, we're still going to love the love of God, and it really hasn't really been satisfying in our soul. Because a lot of times, how many of you have seen lives and all you just love them? You think they're the grandest people in this world as long as they live up to the way you thought they ought to live up to. As long as they walk, I mean, I've heard them say, man, I really like you because you preach it the way I believe. Well, that's no way to gauge love. You don't gauge love because somebody agrees with you. That's not gauging love. Naturally, you'd like for everybody to see like you do, and you'd like for them to, to walk as you do. But how many times have you saw that as long as every little nitty-gritty thing 
was in her life that pleased them. They just thought you the grandest person in the world. But then all at once, they saw something. It had always been there, but they just saw it. And then all at once, they just couldn't. <laughs> Amen. It's a, it's, it was as if that thing had just got him there. But it always been there. The weakness, the nature of man, they just never had an occasion for it to be exposed, that's all. And then all at once, there's something wrong with you. You couldn't be a Christian do this, you couldn't be a Christian act like that, can't love you like that. It's a loving, trying to love with a human love. Like I said, when you come to the parting of ways, love doesn't love with you, right? And if you love an individual, even after they set apart from God, have known God, and walked and went back on God, love doesn't cease there. You don't like what they're doing, you hate the sin that is uh, becoming in their life, but love still stands there longing and beckoning and ready and loving and kind, and nothing has changed. And so it was then, when they beheld the beauty of the temple, so it is now. And they saw it, and they saw that worship, beauty, work. Also, what we have to look at, too, and we still have a few minutes, is the variety of the parts that was in the temple. Amen. Outer court, sanctuary, holy of holies, holiest of all, brazen altar, table of shoe bread, labor of water, altar of incense, ark of the covenant, the holy place, all of these. All of these had their part in the approach to God. So should the church. Diversities of gifts, different positions, different ideas, different opinions, but one spiritual building. And there certainly can't be too much variety in the church. Neither can there be too much oneness. That's actually a mystery when you look at that. God tells us that there is variety in the church. And yet he tries to tell us that there's a in the church. So what do you mean God here? What's he trying to tell us? There's a lot of differences, but there's still oneness. Well, he's speaking the truth there. That there is differences of individuals. Everybody can't be me. They and everybody can't be you. Everybody can't have your heart. But you do have a part. But yet all of these things, regardless of what all there is, all needed to stabilize and beautify that beautiful temple. Each part of it playing its part. Even in the building, stones, uh, all, all it takes to build a house. I'm not a builder, but all of it had to be. Some occupied very prominent places, great pillars, anybody could see them. There's that little niche in the corner. way it is with God's house. They can't be too much variety. We need variety in the church. Also, we need a oneness while that variety is going on. And then another thing is the dwelling place of God. It was not only for God. Not only just for God. It wasn't built. It said, look, this is built for you. It was God's dwelling place. It's where God dwelt. This was the glory of Israel. That's the kind of glory of God that's there. The divine presence of God dwelt there. Everybody knew that. The church's joy and the church's glory 
are, is the fact that God is in the midst of I mean, when God fails to be here, when God fails to dwell here, then everything is gone. He doesn't dwell in the temples made by human hands, but he still does dwell in the temples made by his divine hands. You need to notice that the old temple, ancient temple, would have been meaningless and useless without the presence of the Jehovah God being there. It would have just been a mass of beauty and nothing spectacular could have captured it. And so it is with the church. The Bible tells us you are builded together by a habitation of God through the Spirit. In other words, we have the dwelling place of God. We furnish Him a place to live. We furnish Him a place to work. We furnish Him a body in which He can walk. You see, when he came and he took the body of Jesus, our flesh, so to speak, came and walked and talked among men, furnished him a way to be close to man. And then he was crucified, and then he ascended. The only time that man could touch God Almighty then was whenever they was close to Jesus, but he made it universal. He said, I'll dwell in the life and hearts of man. So he throwed it over. His presence that had been, just been for a few down through the Old Testament, overshadowed by the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of God, prophets and all of those, then all of this was something that we could have. We can have it this morning. All humanity can have the presence of God. They can have God in them, Christ in you, the hope of you. And not only should we have him in them, we should recognize what we're housed. What's inside there? You see the Jews of old, Israelites of old knew and respected what was in that temple. They wouldn't dare. Now there were some places they would go, but they were careful. You see, they made all the necessary steps for the advancement, but they wouldn't dare get into the holy of holies because they wasn't ready to go there. And there's a lot of us trying to advance into the holy of holies with God without the right preparation to get inside there. I've said this more times than one. We living with our natural mind and with our carnal minds are trying to obtain things that only be gotten through a spiritual life. And it'll never happen. We're trying to claim things that God promised spiritual individuals, mature individuals, and we're trying to claim them. And we can't claim them in our present state. They await the maturity of God's church. They await the latter rain, which comes and matures us. Somebody said, oh, we've had the rain. Yes, we've had the former rain. And when it fell on the shores of the United States of America, we had a continuation of the former rain. And since then, we've had showers of blessing. But you show me maturity in this world today. There are places we have advanced to. There's places we're going, but the full maturity that God is expecting out of his people has not been obtained yet. And until we realize that, you can't go any place if you think you're already there. Amen? I could sit here and say, well, I'm in Huntingburg, and I'll never get there because I'm sitting right here thinking I'm there. And until we recognize that there's still some investment in our lives and make preparation, claim those things that are actually ours. You see, it's frustrating when we read the Bible. It really is. It's frustrating because a lot of the promises made is made to mature spiritual individuals. And God says they're yours, but he's talking to individuals that are, have been able to mature 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, in our carnality, our failure to be obedient to what God asked, trying to reach out and get all these things and draw them up, it's never going to happen. So the church really standing in a state of confusion when we feel like that we have reached the grand finale. There's no place else to go. It's a very, very sad state of affairs and a very sad state for any church to get in to think that we have accomplished it all. No place else to go. I thank God for the foundation, but that's what it is. Amen. You can't lay another foundation. The Apostle Paul was very meticulous in that fact. That he didn't know, he told the Corinthians, you can't lay another foundation. I've laid the only one that can possibly be laid. And he wasn't jealous over anything other than when they tried to lay another one. And then he was very meticulous on how they built it upon the foundation that had been laid. In other words, he's trying to say, hey, look, I've laid the foundation. Now then, we've got to build the building. Now, there's enough carpenters in here to know that you do have to have a good foundation. But and then stand back and look and say, what a beautiful house I built. When all you've got is really a foundation. But yet, churches worldwide and Pentecost has been as bad as any of the rest of them have received the foundation, have known it's been true, and yet tried to look at that foundation and proclaim what a beauty of a house. We have it in a lot of us. I'll not say us, a lot of people have not added one stone to that foundation since they experienced it. They're still living off the foundation, repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, receiving the power of the Holy Ghost. No other foundation can be laid than that. The foundation of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Nobody can lay a better foundation, but there is a building to be built. There is some new things and revelations and power God is insisting that we give it to God. There is some advancements. They'll finally the complete God's church. Bring it to full maturity. Hallelujah. I'm going to say it again. There can't be too much variety in the church. There can't be too much All right. So, let's try this. we got just a few more minutes. True worship arose from the temple. Singers sing, it's in the later temple. The musicians played, the scrolls were read. In the earlier temples, of course, there were things that signified all of this. All of incense, of course, incense and sending up into the knock of God with another prayer, labor of water with the cleansing, and on and on you could go with that. But in a later temple, there were singers that sang. There were musicians that played. And the order of worship back then, maybe we understand that. But the order of worship back then, everything that happened, like singers singing and musicians playing and the worship of God, was all a tempo, an upbeat type of thing to lead up to the reading of the scrolls, which was the Word of God. You see, true worship ought to build up to the Word of God. I mean, it ought to be pointed in that direction. Not, it's not for us to experience some good thing of our own. It's not for us just to come and feel good. It's to present an atmosphere that leads up to what God is going to say to us. God will speak through a mule. He can speak through me. And he can speak through you. And we should have enough confidence to know that when we enter into worship, I like the songs that Brother Gary is trying to move. And, of course, he's always inspired us. Sometimes you don't follow. 
Amen. I mean, I see him up here just straining and straining and trying, and and you don't follow him. But he's doing, I think, uh, fantastic, and I think he ought to just keep on doing it. And the worship songs and all of this is trying to lead up to what God is trying to say. It's not to put us to sleep and not to make us become so tired and weary that we don't hear what God has got to say. It's to arouse our attention, captivate us, and lead us to the Word of God to see what God is going to say to us. That's what the temple worship was all about, to bring up to the reading of the scroll, have people's minds on Jesus or on God or on what God is going to say to us. And so the sanctuary worship, we ought to have sanctuary worship. How many believe that? Sanctuary worship. Come on, keep your minds right on me now. Those kids will be all right. They'll make it just fine, Sister Pauline. Make a good job of it. All right? Just look here. Look at me. You can't see anything better right now. All right? I'm not through. I'm almost, but stay right with me. So there's sanctuary worship. Amen. Worshiping in the sanctuary. But it doesn't stop there. They're worshiping our business. How many ever thought that you can worship in your business? Amen. And also there's worship in recreation. Right type of recreation, there's worship in that. You can worship God in that. Worship throughout all the life of everybody that constitutes the temple. In other words, we ought to worship every place. Doing God's divine will, worship in our housework, worship. Uh, I even found out that I could worship under my van, trying to change oil, with oil running all and skin knuckles, I, you know, there's something comes up in you and you just want to say a bad word. Amen. I found out that you can lay under that old man and just say, well, thank you. Hallelujah. And then I look at those boxes holding up and they haven't failed. And I say, thank you. You see, you can worship in a lot of things. A lot of things is good for us to worship the Lord in. Well, that's not all of it. I mean, I've, I've really got involved in this. I don't know whether I'll get through all of it or not, and maybe you get tired of staying on the same lesson, but it's still a fascinating subject. Know you not that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth 